Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the game we all love. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as always is Duncan Castles. We're going to be discussing transfers today, the market beginning to move a little bit, goings on at Newcastle, which of course we did a a bit of a special on last week. I'm sure you uh, all enjoyed that. And uh, we'll be asking as well, when will football return? Duncan, first of all, you have some very interesting news for us regarding a potential signing for Liverpool. Yeah, the information I have is that Liverpool have been in contact with Lille about their Nigeria um, centre-forward, Victor Osimhen. Um, Osimhen's uh, just 21. He's just in his first season in one of the the major um, European leagues. Um, Has been very successful for Lille. Kind of replaced Nicola Pepe as their lead goal scorer. Had 15 goals and, uh, and been credited with five assists in the French League and in the Champions League so far this season. Uh, Maybe a season that has been ended by the French Prime Minister's announcement yesterday. But um, attracting attention from a lot of clubs and kind of been fulfilling the potential he showed when he was the golden boot at the World Youth Cup a few years ago, scoring 10 goals in that particular tournament in Chile and taking um, the prize as the the leading goal scorer. Um, This... Uh, he's a player that uh, Leo signed from Belgium in the summer from Charleroi for 12 million euros. Um, they are open to selling him this summer, but only if the market provides them with the right price. And they're very conscious that this may well not be the transfer window to sell a player of his talent. Um, and and that will factor into their thinking. They 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 believe they've got a player who's going to turn into one of the top centre forwards in European football. Interestingly, pointed out to me that if you take some of the the scouting analysis and you can get uh, analytical profiles drawn up these days, where you you determine a, a certain kind of player. Um, an individual figure and then the analysts will look and and through the market and find the players who most closely resemble him in terms of performance metrics and if apparently if you put Harry Kane into that search engine what comes out at least on one company's analytics is Victor Asimhen which will tell you that he's a different kind of player to the type Liverpool have in attack and would allow them to expand their options and um, were they able to secure him uh, and bed him into to Liverpool's squad, then you have a potentially a top player for a decade to come. Um, pricing, what I'm, the figure I'm hearing from Lille is that they will not sell for less than €80 million Euros, um, this summer, uh, which gives you a sense of, of 
how good they expect the player to be. That's the same figure they took from Arsenal for Nicola Pepe last summer. And again, underlining that they're not prepared to be bid down heavily in this market simply because there isn't money being spent because of the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. They'd rather hold on to him. They have him in a long-term contract. They don't feel pressure from the player himself to be allowed to, to move in the summer. So if needs be, uh, they will say no to lower bids, keep him in their team next season with uh, the intention of, of getting that 80 million euros when one of the big European clubs is, is ready and able to pay it. It is an interesting departure for Liverpool, given the front three uh, more um, physically smaller players, Duncan, that they currently use, uh, obviously. Um, Firmino as well, of course, has not played as a point striker, more as a kind of nine and a half or an eight and a half sometimes as well. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the comparison to Harry Kane, clearly a player who has been himself uh, the Golden Boot winner in the Premier League in the last uh, three years. And someone who is obviously widely valued as well. 80 million euros just sounds a lot of money for a 21 year old. I think that's one thing I think would be a sticking point. And of course, in what we're all beginning to call football's new reality and uh, the, uh, the sort of reality check that uh, the transfer market is expected to have when it reopens may mean that they will have to um, accept a lower valuation. We have um, some other transfer news for you as well. Obviously, there's been ongoing discussions at Chelsea where William has so far um, not agreed a new contract. He's out of contract on June 30th. Uh, it's our information that the player wants a three-year extension. Remember, William is now 31, has been at Chelsea since, I think, 2013. His current deal earns him £120,000 a week. What I've been told is that so far Chelsea uh, have offered him a one-year extension with a one-year option, but when the year option, if it converts, his wages would go more into a performance-related model rather than the straightforward net payment underline. And William and his representatives are not keen on that. Uh, we told you in the podcast some weeks ago that Josie Mourinho would certainly like to take him to Tottenham Hotspur but again, uh, Daniel Levy, the chairman, is very uh, sceptical about paying a 31-year-old uh, the kind of money that's being asked for. Uh, Frank Lampard is certainly very keen on Dries Mertens, the Belgian international who plays at Napoli currently. He is also out of contract at the end of this current season, in whichever way it finishes. And uh, although he's slightly older than William. He's very versatile, can play all the way across the field. And if William were to leave, although Lampard would prefer him to stay, then Mertens would be his number one choice to replace him. Duncan, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, these guys are over 30, but you know they're in, in demand and um, still able to command a very healthy salary. Yeah, we saw Chelsea try and get Dries Mertens in the January window. Um, Mertens didn't push particularly hard for that deal because he was happy to remain at Napoli for the rest of the season and wanted to to break, um, set the record as Napoli's highest ever um, scorer um, in, in club history. So it makes sense that uh, Lampard would be pushing for that again in the summer. And, and 
you know, as we are seeing, and, and I'm hearing this from a lot of clubs and a lot of agents, players who are out of contract, who are proven talents, are probably going to be in a stronger position in this transfer market than ever before because there is there's going to be a reluctance from all but a few clubs to commit large amounts of money on transfer fees. There's a lot of discussion about taking players on loans with an option to buy um, so you don't have a, a definitive commitment to keep the player at, at the end of the season, but you've got a you know, transfer fee sorted there if he does a good job. There's been talk of swap deals. Um, Barcelona are pushing that model because you can engineer transactions where you get players on high wages, such as Philippe Coutinho or Antoine Griezmann, off your books and uh, and bring another player or who who can be detailed in the in the transfer as having a substantial transfer fee and that looks nice in the balance books so as a, as a way of kind of financially engineering a transfer to um to help with ffp and uh, and tidy up what are going to be very messy balance books for a, a lot of football clubs but these the better free agents i think are going to be in a in a relatively strong position because of this reluctance to commit money to transfer fees. Whether they'll be able to get higher wages, however, is is the question mark. They will be wanted, but given the, the expected lack of money in general in the transfer market, and there are going to be exceptions here, there are going to be stronger clubs who will be able to spend. But across the board, um, on average, the clubs are going to have less money to spend. Whether that, that transfers into, well, we'd like to sign you know, Dries Merton or like to sign you William, but you're going to have to take a bit of a, uh, a reduction on your wage expectations because um, we think that's what the marketplace uh, will give you at present. Um, more clubs will be interested in you, but will you be able to find one who can give you that large um, final contract that those type of players would have been searching for in a normal transfer market. So the the demand for them will broaden out, whether the amount of money they're able to secure from the de- deals will increase, I'm skeptical about at the moment. But it, all of this is, is so open because we don't have any dates for resuming seasons. Um, we don't have any dates for transfer windows and we don't have any dates for the for the next season. And we're we're still not even sure that we'll have, for example, Champions League football um, completing for this season or starting for next season. That's what UEFA wants. That's what all the big clubs want. But how it's actually going to be structured um, in a in a system where all the major European leagues can put clubs forward into a European competition where you're traveling across borders, um, where you know closed door games become more complicated than they would be in the in a domestic system is 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 open to question and that all of that affects the dynamics of how much money clubs are going to have to play with in the in this coming transfer window uh, you're right about players who are in freedom of contract Duncan they're arguing a stronger position players who aren't however want to move um I was speaking to uh, one chief executive and uh, a football operations director uh, at different Premier League clubs in the last few days and their views on it were that the clubs will have a harder bargaining position because they can say, well, look, you know how much money we've lost due to lockdown, due to games not being played, our season's not completed. There has to be a consequence for everyone. And the consequence is, no, you can't have 200 grand a week, but we can afford to pay 150. 
And one of the the chief executive I was speaking to said that perhaps the best way to agree deals going forward is to make them more performance related rather than less uh, simple, straightforward, flat wage. And also um, to add bonuses for completion on years of contract, which are not uncommon at the moment anyway, but uh, rather than paying a player you know, two, 2.5 million net a season, you pay 1.5 million net. And if he completes the season uh, or the year of his contract, then he gets an extra 500,000, et cetera, or whatever, the way it's structured. And that way, the clubs are not paying out the money up front, but as football begins to recover financially from the effect of the pandemic, then that's a way that they could not get round, but certainly um, it would be an easier way to, to sort of crack the puzzle of how are we going to afford to buy players and pay them? You will have to find players and agents who are prepared to accept contracts on a performance-related basis when they don't even know there's going to be a season to play in coming up. That, that's going to be the difficulty in that negotiation. And the other difficulty, Duncan, is, as we've seen already, uh, with um, France abandoning its top two football leagues, they've said no professional sport will be played in France until September. Now, that's just uh, a provisional date. As you said, if you're crossing borders and, and you're doing you know, European competitions and everything else, and even the transfer market itself, every country is going to have its own view on what's safe and what's not and what the timings are going to be. So you could end up, you know, if, it, if for instance, football is supposed to restart in Germany next month, okay, so they complete the season and maybe they're on track to begin next season. And no one in France has kicked a ball since February or, or March. Um, it's going to be very difficult to recalculate and, and um, coincide that particular part of when you're playing European games, et cetera, et cetera, because of what's happening in each individual country. Yeah, and, and you're asking uh, teams and players to uh, move between countries which will be at, at clearly at different stages of recovery from their um, pandemic uh, in their own country and and perhaps will still have border controls in place. So do you get a special exemption for European club football? Um, do you, you build a, a, a kind of an immunity passport which, which says if you're at a football club in a football league that's playing in a bubble and, and keeping their players separated um, from the rest of the community. They, they are therefore allowed to travel, for example, from Spain to Germany to play a Champions League match when no one else is. I, I know all of this stuff at present is predicated on a massive um, list of assumptions. And you, I think we're increasingly going to see situations like France where the government just steps in and says, look, we're not letting you play football until September at the earliest. So forget about these plans to have players come back and train individually and then train as a team while social distancing and then putting them into hotels with support staff for six, seven, eight weeks to complete a season. I, I, I saw um, details of, of how the, the Spanish league were, um, were planning to, uh, to try and get games going. And, and some of the provisions you just question whether they'll be able to uh, get them into effect. So they're talking about disinfecting the pitch before kickoff at half time and, and after, immediately after a match, that players won't 
be allowed to shower in the stadium, that they, they'll have to put their kit into biodegradable bags and then go back from the stadium to shower in their hotel rooms with the idea being that the, the players will stay in a hotel for the entire period in which La Liga is being played behind closed doors, playing ghost games. And in that hotel as well, they will be isolated. So each player will be told there's no social interaction um, in the hotel. You stay in your room when you're not playing football. I, I, I find it hard to believe that these measures can be practical to sustain them over the period of time that will be required just to finish one league season, never mind to start another one in Germany. We've seen the chief executive of the Bundesliga saying that he doesn't expect any games to be played with spectators until January at the earliest. And that's a league that has been most hopeful about completing uh, starting again next month, completing the the current season and and starting the new season. Um, you know, and this is before you get into the practicalities of can you actually prevent the disease from hitting one of these bubbles and then spreading within the bubble, and then the the those players who have been placed inside it having to be quarantined elsewhere, and then decisions over which players you you take out alongside them. It, it, the complexities of it are huge um, and it, dif, as you say different countries are in different places and we, we saw France yesterday basically putting a decree down this is not going to happen um, you're not going to play we've seen the Netherlands do the same in the UK we've actually got the opposite situation where the government is encouraging the Premier League to come back um, they, you know, they want the games played for economic purposes and they want to kind of distract the, the population away from um, the virus and, and give them some entertainment. So you've got a different kind of pressure there. But that also causes problems because then you, you, you've, you've got to persuade the clubs. And as we've told you in previous Transfer Window podcasts, there is not unanimity within the Premier League clubs, never mind uh, across uh, the EFL clubs, but not even within the Premier League clubs is there unanimity over actually um, wanting to play and wanting to resume and wanting to to finish the season. There are great, there are a significant number of sceptics in there who are minded to say, actually, we should forget about this season. We should start up um, thinking about how we restart in a coherent fashion with a new season rather than trying to cram this one in before getting on to the next one. And uh, one of the suggestions, Duncan, uh, uh, other than the quarantining of players, et cetera, was the possibility that games could be played at neutral venues. Now, I'm told that uh, during discussions between the Premier League stakeholders of 20 clubs, that's been rejected outright, that there's absolutely no way they would consider playing at neutral stadiums. First of all, because they would lose sporting advantage of having a home crowd, which uh, the players and uh, the clubs themselves are very keen on, and of course, you would lose the re match day revenue as well. So you'd be making the problem worse rather than better uh, if that was going to be adopted as a potential solution. So it just seems logistically to be far too complex. And eventually, I think you know it, it will be the government who has to take the action because we've seen the Premier League just stall and stall and stall because they are hoping that either things get miraculously better. In, in very quick space of time, which is not expected, 
or that if they themselves have not made the decision to complete the season, then they will not be liable to uh, repay the broadcasting money because that decision was taken out of their hands. So uh, that yeah, I, th- I think I think that's important. I think that, that that's another aspect to where the government is important. If the government say, like the French government have said, you can't play until September, then the Premier League clubs can go to the broadcaster and say, we didn't make this decision, and we can't go against what the government tell us. So um, it changes the legal position, but. There are, there are a lot of statements in the last few days which are just moving towards this idea that a, a, a quick restart isn't practical. You've got the Watford chief executive, Scott Duxbury, saying, football for me now just needs to be put to one side. I feel uncomfortable at this stage even talking about football as a narrative because there are people dying every day. There are stresses on the NHS and that has to be our priority. When it is safe and the government say it is absolutely fine for players and support staff to return, then I'm 100% behind that. So, you know, leaning it on the government to make a decision uh, and saying, you know, it's this is not the time to be trying to uh, start playing football again. You've got FIF Pro Secretary General asking about the, you know, it's a huge logistical and medical scientific question about testing and protocols and and asking whether it, it, it's the right thing. Are we sending the right message to society and are we encouraging a healthy return to normal life or, or are we sending a bad signal that football has different rules to the rest of the world if we go back into playing ghost games? And and then you also have the, the chief um, medic of FIFA uh, Michel Duch, um saying uh, it's very simple. Football suddenly becomes not the most important thing in life. I will be very happy if we can start in a convenient way the next championship and have nothing before the start of next season. If they could start the season 2021, 20, end of August or beginning of September, I would be happy. Then they could eventually avoid a second attack from the virus, which is not impossible. Um, he says, I'm very happy to hear from Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, to saying health is put before everything. I think this is the only right attitude. I support that. So, you know, there's a lot of weight from people in football questioning this attempt to get the leagues restarted as soon as possible, which is just still where we're at with uh, England, um, Italy, Spain and Germany and not um, and it's not a coincidence that those are the four leagues left that have very high broadcast revenues and don't want to lose those broadcast revenues and are worried about the financial states of the club. If the broadcasters say, well, you haven't provided the product, we're not giving you the money that um, that helps run uh, your clubs. And of course, adding to that is the complication of UEFA, who are the one part of the administration of football so far who have said have set a deadline for countries to decide if they're going to complete the national leagues and to get, tell them how they're going to do it and when it's going to be done. Oh, and why is that? Well, they've got Champions League and Europa League to complete this season and then small matter of an already postponed European Championship uh, a year this summer. And what they don't want, obviously, is this season running into the beginning of next, next season then pushing what would have been Euro, well, it's going to be called Euro 2020 anyway, uh, back even further. And of course, 
you've got a World Cup coming up as well in Qatar. And the whole thing's become one huge traffic jam and no one knows how to actually get it moving again. Well, we told you several weeks ago on the podcast that the clubs had been informed from UEFA that they wanted entry lists for the 2021 European club competitions, Champions League, League and Europa League by August the 2nd. So try and get yourselves finished in one way or another by August the 2nd. Um, if you haven't finished the leagues, you have to come up with a way of allocating teams to the European competitions. I, I, UEFA denied that was the case. But we've now got back to a situation where there is a deadline. Uh, they, they want that entry list done and they also want to finish off this season's Champions League, Europa League in August. Um, that's where UEFA are, are, are planning to do things at the moment. Obviously, there will be no games played in France in, in the Champions League. Paris Saint-Germain will not play home games in France because the French government have said, you're not playing any football here until September 1st at the earliest. The response from Paris Saint-Germain is interesting because they've said, well, we will adhere to the, the French regulations, but we're going to carry on playing in the Champions League if the Champions League takes place. And if we have to go and play both our games, if it's a, if it stays to the same format and, and both legs are, are uh, it's a two-legged um, knockout round until the final, we will play both legs outside France so we can remain in, in the competition. Um, the complexities of it are huge. Uh, and no one... I don't think, I think it's fair to say no one has come up with a coherent solution and, and it's not a surprise they haven't come up with a coherent so solution because the, the knowledge of what is going to, of the disease itself and how it's going to affect each country and what's going to happen going forward um, just isn't there. So you're, all of these plans have to be based on massive assumptions and coming back to the point we made earlier that the one governing body in each country that can can ultimately decide whether it happens or not are the governments of these countries because they can all take the line that the French government has taken and say we decide when you play um, and, and the, the French government has effectively said no more football, no more professional sports um, for over four months forget it Further complications in football for the Premier League potentially with the proposed takeover of Newcastle United. In last week's pod, we gave you a very detailed analysis of uh, what has happened so far. It has moved forward, Duncan, we understand, but not maybe as smoothly as some people thought. Is that the case? Yeah, I think I think it, it, it has become more complex than any of these takeovers have before. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, as, as we said to you, this is the first time where sports washing, the idea that a nation state buys a, a football club to, to tidy up its image and, and to, to garner um, positive publicity associated with its name, that is being raised as an issue from the very start, from before the deal is actually completed. So the Premier League are under very significant pressure this time to deal with the human rights questions over Saudi Arabia. And those human rights questions are extremely significant. Um, they also have 
an element that we've not seen before, which is one of their major paymasters, the, the Qatar-based broadcasters, BN, saying, you should not go ahead with this takeover because these guys, uh, this country, has been involved in um, industrial-level theft of your commercial rights, and uh, you don't want to reward that country by allowing them to have uh, control of one of the, the football teams. Um, what I'm hearing is this is a significant factor for the Premier League because you're talking about a large revenue stream um, from BN um, and a, an implicit threat that that revenue stream may be cut off when this, this current right cycle ends if they allow uh, Saudi Arabia to buy one of the, the Premier League football clubs. Response I'm getting from the, the, the end, the takeover end, the, the, the group that are um, preparing to buy Newcastle United is that they feel that the Premier League will ignore both of these things. They feel the Premier League do not want to be seen to have to make a moral judgment over um, the owners of a football club. Saudi Arabia trades with the UK. It's a favoured trade partner. The UK sells arms to Saudi Arabia. If it's okay for the UK government to deal with Saudi Arabia, why should the Premier League um, use its owner and director's test um, to exclude Saudi Arabia from buying one of its clubs. That's not, it shouldn't be their responsibility to make a decision like that. That should be a government decision. On the broadcast revenue front, it's, I have not been dissuaded from the line I mentioned last week that Saudi Arabia might be ready to come and buy any rights that are left open by Qatar. Um, they certainly have the capital to do so. And they certainly have the interest in buying into football in general to do so. So this might, the impression I'm getting is this is almost being seen as an opportunity by Saudi Arabia. If BN want to play tough and want to threaten the Premier League um, over uh, future broadcast revenues, the Saudis could be ready to come in and say, well, we'll, we'll take up those contracts or we'll pay you more for those contracts. Um, it fits in with our Vision 2030 plan. It fits in with our plan to, to get more involved in football. We've been involved in, in FIFA's attempt to um, expand the Club World Cup. So, yeah, bring it on basically seems to, to be the message there. Um, what I think is also more difficult for the Premier League here is not just that these matters are, are being highly publicised from the beginning. It's also it's being done at a time when there is very little other news in football. In, in normal circumstances, whenever there's controversy associated with the Premier League, the Premier League can always depend on the football to wash that controversy off the front and back pages. There's always another game. There's, there's the, the actual stuff on the pitch, which fundamentally interests the vast majority of people more than any of the politics behind it going on. Therefore, um, the, the story about a potential owner and um, that owner's human rights abuses or whether um, they've been involved in, in taking money off the Premier League in the past. And, and remember, in this, uh, this challenge over Be Out Q, um, the, the company that has been stealing um, the Qatar BN's rights in the Middle East and North Africa, this is a challenge that the Premier League has, has taken up in its own right, combined with other football associations and made public statements on. So it is something of significance to them. 
But in this context, where the Newcastle United is such a big story and there is very little um, else to report on in football, there is far more attention on what the Premier League decide to do than there would be in normal circumstances. So I think that also complicates matters. I mean, what, uh, what kind of feedback have you been getting, Ian, from um, other Premier League clubs about what, what they think the right strategy to go for is regarding a, a Saudi takeover? Well, as usual with Premier League clubs, Duncan, they uh, prefer to sit back and watch things play out before they have to, they're, <laughs> they're pushed into making any opinions known or uh, privately, of course, that's not the case. Uh, one club owner um, had suggested to me that uh, there was interest in this from the government because of the involvement of potential fraud with regards to the um, TV rights and be out queue, as you mentioned. Also because of Amnesty International's position, we've also now had the um, fiancé of the murdered journalist, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, has issued a statement through her lawyers saying it would be morally inappropriate and wrong for uh, Saudi Arabia's um, nation state to have a club in the Premier League and uh, it would be endorsing um, that regime uh, by doing so. But one of the interesting things is they, they, the clubs particularly, as you suggested, Duncan, at, at the moment, football, and especially the Premier League, is generally self-governing. You know, They do pretty much control their own empire, as it were. However, a couple of people have suggested to me that if, and it is their legitimate right, the government felt pressured into... Um, doing a select committee inquiry into the process of the fit and proper persons test. If they decided to call witnesses to a select committee, um, if they even decided to invest money into a full-scale investigation about money in the Premier League, then that's something the clubs would not want. Um, so attracting a lot of potentially negative publicity as well as further attention towards the and remember how many foreign owners we have now in the Premier League as well so uh, due diligence is something which the Premier League claim to do with regards to ownership but from my knowledge of the fit and proper persons test it's not exactly the kind of due diligence you see on the kind of industrial scale uh, when you know there's company contracts or takeovers and business um, any kind of acquisitions of companies one by another, et cetera. The due diligence can go on for a year involving that stuff. And we're talking about a multi-billion pound industry. Why is football so different? Why do you have to fill in a 12-page questionnaire, submit your passport, and then, you know, as long as you've not been convicted of any felony, yeah, you're okay, you come, welcome to England. You know, it, it doesn't seem to be the correct process. But it's one the Premier League are happy with. It's one that they think works well enough for them. And so the last thing they want is uh, any government nosy uh, snoopers coming around their house and saying any more skeletons in the closet there. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic going forward with regard to this. History tells us, Duncan, as we know, that where football's concerned, money talks. Money is always the, the, the deciding factor and has the loudest voice. And you're looking at uh, an owner who has billions and billions of the PIF currently has $350 billion 
um, in its uh, coffers. So uh, they would be, you know, by by quite some way, the most uh, uh, financially powerful owner in English football. Um, unless, of course, Abu Dhabi decided to invest even more money in Manchester City, they, but they don't even have the same assets um, as the uh, ruling family of Saudi Arabia anyway. So this is going to be, uh, I think, a bit of a scuffle rather than a straightforward uh, sort of walk in the park for PCP partners who have the management contract to conduct a takeover on behalf of PIF. Um, and it, when coming as it is in the middle of the pandemic crisis and the fact that there's no games being played, as you rightly said, even a VAR decision can wipe these kind of things into, you know, three paragraphs in a sidebar of a newspaper or, you know, make them miss the news altogether on television, etc. But with that not being the case, then everyone suddenly takes much more interest. And I suspect the Premier League itself is sort of cursing uh, their sort of, you know, I wouldn't say luck because that's their own way to describe the situation we all find ourselves in. But it's certainly a very inconvenient uh, time for the Premier League to be out dealing with these questions and indeed for the government to be getting involved as well. Look, the, the Premier League does have a clause in its owner and director's test, which it could use here. You could say it's a kind of catch-all clause and it's F1.6. And that says, in the reasonable opinion of the board, um, talking about an owner or a director, he has engaged in conduct outside the United Kingdom that would constitute an offence of the sort described in earlier rules. If such conduct had taken place in the United Kingdom, whether or not um, such conduct resulted in a conviction, then the Premier League is allowed to disbar a director or an owner. So they could use that in the in this case, where they... Uh, to come to the opinion that it was better not to have um, the Saudi Arabian um, Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, which is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of the country, um, as the owner of Newcastle United. It's also been pointed out that there is a potential conflict of interest argument in the sense that Sheffield United are also owned by a member of um, the Saudi Arabian royal family. And it's been pointed out that um, the, the, the kind of governance and the kind of autocracy that you have in Saudi Arabia is such that you could imagine a situation where um, Prince um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, if he required it, would be able to lean on the owner of Sheffield United, Prince Abdullah bin Mossad, um, to help his team. Um, that, that's not beyond uh, the realms of imagination. Uh, and it's certainly a unique circumstance to for the Premier League to face, to have um, two members of the same extended royal family as owners, ultimate authorities over two competing football clubs. So that, that you know, that will be, it's a consideration that's been raised and it's another one the Premier League will have to look at when making an ultimate decision on this. Um, it has to be said that the, you know, the group buying the club seem very confident that this will go through. Um, and they are you know, very much working on their strategy going forward. They emphasise that this is a deal that they have been working on for over two years and they know Newcastle United very well. They want to contrast it with 
um, the purchases of Manchester City and Liverpool, which were kind of hurried deals, happened in a short period of time. And I think you could argue that both sets of owners of, of Liverpool and Manchester City made uh, mistakes in the initial period, probably because they would, well, almost certainly because they didn't understand what they were getting into. And and the, the consortium buying Newcastle say that's they feel they've got an advantage here because they know what they've been going into. They have a, a very definite plan that they've been working on for a long time. PCP Capital will have the management contract. Amanda Staveley will go on the board. They will put things to PIF, who will, and the major decisions will be signed off on by PIF. But PC Capital have a group of football specialists who they, they've they've hired been using for some time who are working on the Newcastle project. There's been a, there's been a few stories around um, about managerial changes and about the new chief executive who will come in after Lee Charnley has, has held the interim role. Um, there was one story that Ian Eyre, formerly chief executive of Liverpool, obviously the guy who was involved in many of the mistakes that were made by Fenway Sport Group at the start of their the ownership of, of Liverpool was the leading candidate for um, to become Newcastle United's new chief executive. I was told that caused a lot of amusement amongst um, PCP and uh, and others involved in the takeover, and said so not a chance at all that Ian Eyre would be hired as the uh, as the chief executive. Uh, and actually, they they haven't fixed on a name. They're they're trying to come up with good candidates that they can present. They can interview and present to PIF as the right person to to lead going forward. It's also a story today that um, George Jesus, uh, the Flamengo manager, uh, former Benfica coach, was um, a candidate to replace Dave Bruce as manager. Again, said no, absolutely not the case. Steve Bruce will remain in situ at least until the end of the season. That's not a priority for them. What they are focusing on is. Uh, completing the deal, getting into the club, properly into the club. And obviously lockdown is an issue here because they cannot get in on the ground until that um, uh, restriction on, on people's movement is lifted uh, and, and reorganising and, and, and implementing their strategy for approving uh, the, the playing squad, which is going to be central to getting them to the top of the Premier League, which is their, their stated ambition. Um, one interesting aside was that the, the, they want to knock back the idea that it will be difficult to bring players and if necessary down the line top managers um, to Newcastle United. Um, they are uh, certain that Newcastle United will be a very attractive place um, for those kind of individuals to come to once they have control of the club and once the transfer market opens up again, which I think emphasizes once more the kind of um, money they are prepared to put into it into this to achieve their aims they keep saying we will work within ffp we're not going to break the regulations um, in brackets in the way that manchester city did uh, we're going to do this in a structured intelligent manner but be sure there is very, very substantial capital behind this. And they, they believe they can radically change the setup of Newcastle United as a, as a football club, as a, as a choice of destination for footballers in a way it hasn't been for very many years. I'm guessing Tino Espria and David Ginnels dust off their boots, Duncan. Get back to those days. 
that's definitely the kind of player that the Toon fans will want to see again in the, in the black and white chairs. We're going to finish today's podcast with our hero and villain slot. You know the form, and I'm going to ask Duncan to nominate his villain, please. Um, I I think this week has given us the opportunity to make a a former significant figure in in football who's who's been out of the game in an executive role for quite some time, a a villain for for the first time, and that is Alan Sugar, who... um, who told uh, the the world on his Twitter feed yesterday that um, that journalists needed to get in line with the government and uh, and uh, not question what they were doing, not question policies that had resulted in tens of thousands of deaths, and uh, and make the nation feel good again. So um, I think Alan Sugar's uh, attitude to um, telling uh, people that they shouldn't make inquiries as to the uh, effectiveness of a government, which is have run up one of the highest death rates um, following coronavirus in the world, um, deserves very much villain status this week. To be fair, I think he's been cast as a villain a few times, Duncan. He certainly, and with regards to journalists, I seem to remember uh, when he was Tottenham um, owner and chairman, there was quite a few court cases as well <laughs> with sports journalists. <laughs> uh, he loved a visit to, to court, did, uh, did just Alan Sugar, I think he was then, not Lord. Uh, very good. Um, I'm going to nominate as my hero, and it's kind of hero stroke anti-hero, but it's, it's pure for the fact that this was a headline I never thought I'd read, Duncan, uh, because it so lacks any sense of self-awareness that it's almost impossible that this man could have said it. And it's the former Leeds United uh, chief executive, Peter Ridsdale, uh, now at Preston North End. And he has said in an interview with the BBC that there is no better time than now to to correct football's finances. (laughs) I'd love to be, be doing that interview to say, Peter, didn't you do that through your entire uh, tenure as Chief Executive of Leeds United? You certainly redistributed most of Leeds' money, that's for sure, uh, during the, that rather sort of um, sensational period in Premier League history. So, Peter Ridsdale, you are my hero for your lack of self-awareness. Uh, maybe, t- um, maybe, maybe he's got a solution for football, which involves owners buying fish tanks back from their football club to allow them to meet FFP regulations going forward. <laughs> oh dear! Well, so if if anyone comes across Mr. Ridsdale, I certainly haven't in the last decade or so. Then please, you know, point them in the direction of some kind of coach who, who can actually you know, put you in front of a mirror and say, always listen to what you're going to say before you say it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's the end of this particular Transfer Window podcast. Please join the debate. Uh, Our social media channels are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I am at Garbo SJ. We love to get your opinions. Uh, Any questions, if you want to keep the debate going, You know where to find us and you know that we will engage with you as well. Part of the fun and also part of the enjoyment for us, that's for sure. Until we uh, speak to you again on the next transfer window, stay safe and be well. And thanks for listening.